Hey guys, and welcome back to another brand new episode of the Listen To Me Speak podcast. I am your host, Kayla Taylor, and I just want to thank you guys so much for listening to last week's episode, for sharing it with friends, for sharing it on social media. Any way you supported the podcast last week, I really, really appreciated it. And, you know, it was pretty much all about Kendrick Lamar. So even if you didn't listen to that album or if you're not even a real fan like that and you still listened, I appreciate that even more. So without wasting any more time, let's get right into this episode. So I want to start off episode 14 by getting into one of my movie reviews. So after months of it being out, I think literally on the date, I think I watched it four months after it had been released on Hulu, I finally sat down and watched Fresh which stars Sebastian Stan, and you may know him from the Marvel films. He plays Bucky, aka the Winter Soldier, and also Daisy Edgar-Jones as well. Her name sounds familiar, but I really want to say this is the first film of hers that I've actually sat down and watched. Now, when I watched the trailer for Fresh, it caught my eye because I thought it was interesting. And also, I love the art of minimal trailers where I know that sounds bad, but I feel like a lot of trailers over the past decade kind of give too much away. You pretty much get the whole movie in the trailer. And I think going to college and kind of learning how to edit videos and kind of put together really strong trailers made me have a really uh, strong appreciation for trailers that were didn't give you everything, but gave you enough to kind of pull your interest and force you to maybe kind of sit down and watch the film because you know a little bit of what it may be about but you don't know everything that's going on and I feel like that's what causes people to want to see a movie interest or a desire to know what's going to happen in the film because the trailer kind of was a tease and Jordan Peele does that really well too his note trailer his his first note trailer was really good he hasn't uh, released another one yet and so this trailer was kind of like that too you kind of get the notion that okay this guy must be some kind of cannibal or serial killer And I kind of want to learn more. So finally, I went through a period of time where I was watching a lot of movies and I was, I felt like I was churning out a lot of reviews and then I kind of felt a little movied out because I was watching so many. And during my recovery from my surgery, that's, I had a whole lot of time on my hands. So I caught up on TV shows I was behind on. I watched a shit ton of movies. And so I think I was just movied out. So finally I sat down and I'm like, you know what? I want to watch this film because I always do this to myself. I always end up behind the curve when it comes to movies, especially and limited series. And I kind of want to get better about that. So I'm like, let's just set aside time to finally just watch the film. And I'm glad I did. It, it was, I enjoyed this film. It wasn't like one of those where, oh, I was really kind of looking forward to watching the movie. And then it kind of sucked kind of how I felt about Deep Water. I thought that film was going to be better than it ended up being. But anyway, back to Fresh. So for those of you who haven't seen the film yet, Fresh is centered on this main character named Noah, played by Daisy Edgar-Jones. And she's young. She's a 20-something-year-old who is kind of trying to force herself into the dating world. The film starts off with her on a horrible date. The guy's a jerk. And when she kind of rebuffs his advances, he kind of like calls her out of her name. And it's just really, really... A horrible guy so we start off there and you get the sense that you know we were introduced to her best friend molly and outside of molly she doesn't really have anybody she doesn't really ha- she's not close to her family i i don't know i don't remember if they explained what happened to the family 
But either way, she's not close to her family and the only real human interaction she seemingly gets was in the beginning of the film with that horrible date and with her best friend. And so it's the beginning, the first few minutes of the film, it, it you spend time with the character to at least kind of get to know her a little bit. We discover that she has a very dry sense of humor. She doesn't seem to be a people person, all of that. And then she's shopping one night in a supermarket and she meets this guy named Steve, who's played by Sebastian Stan. And he's very awkward. You can tell he likes her. He's flirting with her. But all of his, I guess, what do you call those? Like all of his lines are bad. They're corny. They're awkward. And there's this sort of charm about him because he's so awkward and he acknowledges this awkwardness and he decides that even though he kind of didn't really give the first or the, the greatest first impression that he's going to go for it anyway and get her number and of course she's charmed by this and they have a similar sense of humor. From then on they go on a date and we kind of get this montage of them getting to know each other, these different dates, and you can see that she's really falling in like with him. I wouldn't say love because I think they were only dating each other for a couple of weeks. And so he finally convinces, oh, before I get to that part, the best friend, as best friends do, Molly, wants to stalk the guy on social media to kind of get a feel for him, see what he looks like. And the first red flag you get about Steve is that he doesn't have any social media. Now, I know for those of you who may be of like a older generation may think that that's not, there's nothing wrong with not being on social media. But in this day and age, when you're in your twenties, when you're dating someone and they're not on social media, it's kind of a red flag. If they don't have at least some form of social media, you don't have to be on Twitter. You don't have to be on Facebook, but do you have a Snapchat? Do you have an Instagram? Do you have something? Because it gives the impression that you're trying to hide something. And so Noah tells Molly that he doesn't have any social media and she, I can tell that she picked up on how odd that was, but she lets it go. From then on, he kind of convinces her to come to his place. He lives in a cabin. So she can, he convinces, Steve convinces Noah to spend the weekend at his cabin. And she goes along with it. And the best friend is kind of texting her and, and, and doing what best friends do, which is making sure that your friend is safe. And if I don't hear from you, after a certain amount of time, I'm gonna get worried, things like that. And so they're at the cabin, everything's going smoothly, she's drinking, and all of a sudden, the tone starts to change. You know, while watching this montage, you kind of get a rom-com type of feel. Now, obviously, if you read the description of the movie, you watch the trailer, you know that this isn't a rom-com. It's supposed to be like a, a horror thriller, whatever you wanna call it. But it gives you this false sense of hope or not even a false sense of hope. Maybe it's a little bit of a juxtaposition to start this film out this way. But then once the tone changes, once the, the shots become blurry and fuzzy, you realize, oh, we're 30 minutes in and now, now we're kind of getting to the real meat of the story and then boom, the title drops. Now, usually you get the title drop within the first two, three minutes of the film, but the director made the choice to put it, you know, 30 minutes or so into the film. And I feel like it was really effective because, again, it gave you this this kind of false sense of hope and you feel like you're watching a beautiful the beginning of a beautiful love story start to unfold. And then by kind of changing the frame a little bit by making... And, and by the way, 
this film is shot in a very point of view directional style, which I love. And so it forces you to be placed in Noah's shoes. You really feel like a prisoner from that point on because when you're in when you're in a position that she's in where she's been kidnapped, you're you go into like hyper focus mode. And I feel like the director was able to capture that really well and she was able to capture that as well as she did because of the style that she went with, which is you're seeing what Noah's seeing. You're viewing Steve from her eyes. You're, you're, the way she would pan the camera quickly back and forth to mimic what's, what you would do when you're assessing a room and reminding an audience what it's like to be on your P's and Q's where you're sensing danger and you have to make a quick escape. So you're looking around the room to find the best exit possible to get away from whatever you're trying to get away from. I feel like, for the story that the director was trying to tell, the theme that she was going with, that directional style suited Fresh the best. And so once we we realize almost instantly that she's been drugged, because again, we're viewing things from Noah's point of view, and the room turns fuzzy, it gets a little blurry, she starts slurring her words, then you get to the title drop, and then completely after that, the light and airy kind of soundscape that was leading the film during that montage abruptly ends and you get the sense of dread and from there you start to learn that Steve is not only a cannibal but that he is a part of a network of like billionaire cannibals and he's kidnapping women after seducing them he's slowly chopping up their body parts one by one packaging them up like they're actually pieces of meat and sending them off to these people so that they can be eaten it's horrifying to you're essentially watching this character kill these women off slowly one by one limb by limb and the first body part he takes from her is her her ass and that's kind of it's gross and it didn't even have to be super gory you don't see anything you don't see him actually cut really any of them but it's the sense of you know that that's what's going on and then you see how she's affected afterward how she's been how she's walks now that she doesn't really have a butt and how much pain she's in and the stains from the bandages and you just get that sense of dread and you feel unsettled while watching the film because it's implying things without showing you everything i think sometimes people go for the shock value part of a film and i think implying things can be just as unsettling because your mind will create what the director and the writers are implying. So we didn't have to see him physically, we didn't have to see her actual butt being cut off. Our brain is already going to conjure up that image. And I think what the director can create and show you is going to be tame compared to what your brain is going to create and show you because you're going to assume the worst because something like that is absolutely horrific. And I saw a lot of people, because I'm on letterbox now, you should definitely follow me on there if you don't. But I'm on Letterboxd now, so when I did my kind of short summary of the film on there, I kind of looked at what other people were talking about, and they brought up some valid points. Obviously, while watching this film, it's you can tell that this is a take on modern dating and sex trafficking, except it's not to say that sex trafficking is an extreme, but cannibalism is a more extreme route. And it shows, I think, it validates really the fear that a lot of young women have when they're going out on dates because you don't you don't know this person. You're swiping through Tinder or whatever dating app is currently popping out here. And 
you're getting to know, know them a little bit on these apps and you take a chance when you go out and meet them, even if it's in a public place like a restaurant. You take a chance dating anybody really, but since this is set in modern time, dating apps and dating sites can be very scary. I think we've all been kind of weary of them. And so unfortunately this does happen to women where they meet someone online, they decide to give them a shot and go out on a date and they get to know this person. All of a sudden you've been dating them for a couple of weeks and you start to get to know who they really are. And in some real life cases, sex traffickers actually do what Steve is doing in this film, which is, okay, I'm luring you in with this false sense of security. I'm charming. I'm sweet on the surface. And then once I've gotten to know you and I've gotten your trust within a couple of weeks, that's when I kind of make my move and I attack like a predator would. And I think that there is foreshadowing of that or signs of that in this film. The fact that they point out that she doesn't have a whole lot of family. One of the other women in the other room that he did the same thing to had no family. So he's targeting specific women, loners, people that aren't close to a lot of people. It makes it easier for them to kidnap you if no, if they know that nobody's going to be worried about you. So there are these moments in the film where that's kind of highlighted and it, it really, people are right. It really is kind of like an extreme modern take on the worst thing that can go wrong by going on a date with someone you don't really know. And you do take a chance anytime you go on a date with someone, whether it's you're meeting them through a dating app, you bump into them in the grocery store, like they happen, like it happened in this film. And I think they did a good job of making Steve this kind of charming guy in the beginning. Because even while watching the first 30 minutes, I knew where it was heading in, in the or where it was going to head to in the end. Because obviously the trailer does tell you a little bit of that. But again, he creates this false sense of security that even though you know that he's not who he says it is, who he is, you understand why Noah kind of fell for the act. Because he was really charming. Who would have known that some random guy, some random awkward guy she met in the grocery store was going to be a cannibal one and was going to kidnap her. I do think she was a little too trusting. They had only been dating for a couple of weeks before she agreed to go out to his cabin. But you never expect something extreme like that to happen. And I think Sebastian Stan was really solid in the role in that in that way because he the way he was able to kind of flip between different emotions was kind of scary and it kind of replicated what psych what a psychopath is and what a lot of serial killers do which is that they're they don't feel real emotions but they're able to mimic them to convince other people to believe that that they're actually feeling something when really they're feeling nothing and the way that he switched back and forth between caring and loving to um devoid of emotion or to someone really vicious and predatory was he did a really good job he that I was unsettled watching him in this role and he just has that face to me that kind of I don't want to say he's like a, he has a serial killer face but he has that kind of face that would make him believable in these types of roles if that makes sense so I think this theme that the director was trying to go with was actually pulled off really well I think sometimes it can be tricky because it can sometimes feel forced or so obvious that you're you're trying to be deeper than what the film is actually showing the audience like I know this is an Adam McKay production but speaking of him don't look up gave me that feeling of 
we understand the message and the theme and we get your point. And a lot of us even agree with the point that he was trying to make in that film, but it felt too forced, you know? And I think that fresh is a little bit more subtle. It's, you can pick up the theme, but it doesn't feel, I don't know how to describe what I'm trying to say. It doesn't feel like maybe forced is the word. Cause I often feel that way about a lot of the directors and screenwriters that have tried to replicate Jordan Peele's Get Out in their own way. And it kind of feels a little forced. It doesn't feel as interesting or creative than when Jordan Peele did it. It just feels like people are, oh, he had a film with, you know, some deep and metaphorical themes and we kind of want to recreate that, but we're kind of missing the point that Jordan Peele was trying to make with Get Out. And we're just kind of doing surface level stuff just to prove that we can be provocative and then we can make the audience think and feel and we can create this piece of art that can be dissected in all of these different ways. It feels like Fresh was a little bit more subtle in that way, enough for the audience to pick up on it without trying to be deeper than they need to be. I, it sounded better in my head. I hope you guys get what I'm trying to say with this film. This movie manages to pull off combining horror and comedy well. Even if some parts of the script script are a little cringy, you, you kind of you give the writers a pass for it because some of the lines really are funny and I think it's because they're so deadpan because the main character, Noah, she really is so deadpan. And for me, the funniest people and the funniest characters are the ones that aren't trying to be funny, but they are. And that's kind of like some of the moments in this film that are just... They're just unintentional. They're just unintentionally funny. And I think it can be kind of hard combining these elements because then you can sometimes come across as too campy. But I think that this film had the right amount of campiness. I already talked about how much I love the point of view directional style that the director went with, as well as some of the effects that she chose. Because like I said before, it makes you feel like you're as much of a prisoner as Noah is in the film. And it makes... It pulls you into the film even further and it keeps you on the edge of your seat and you kind of just, you you want to keep going. You want to find out how it's going to end. You're pushing for Noah and the other characters to escape because by looking through this story through Noah's eyes, it makes you feel like you're there. It makes you feel like you're her. And obviously as a woman, a lot of what was going on in this movie validated a lot of my fears as well as I'm sure a lot of other women's fears as well. So you just have this huge shot of adrenaline while watching this movie. And so I think that that was, like I said, a great stylistic choice on the director's part. I also think that the soundtrack and score for this film was perfectly curated, particularly one of my favorite moments when it comes to music in this film was the off with your head scene where that song was playing in the background during the climax of the movie where Noah is trying to escape from Steve. And I think... I don't think she chops his head off, but she does kind of hit him repeatedly with, was it a shovel or something like that? He gets, he gets hit and, and pretty much he's, his body is pretty much like, I don't want to say disintegrated, but it, he's like, he's a mess. His face is a mess. His body's a mess. He's essentially, it's, he's not even recognizable. So whoever was in charge of the soundtrack and score did a phenomenal job in that way. It added to the campiness of the film in, in the best of ways. And there are other moments too where literally there's there's one scene. I, I can't even call it a, a montage, but there's one scene where Steve is 
chopping up the meat from the women he killed, preparing it like he's actually preparing food, and dancing and singing to this upbeat song from the 70s. I forgot which song it is. But he's dancing in the kitchen. It's like, it was funny to me because it was trying to paint him as normal. Like, oh, this is a normal guy who's just cooking in the kitchen, seasoning his meat and packaging it up and sending it off. And he's just singing and dancing in the kitchen and drinking wine. Lo and behold, he's preparing human beings. And so there are certain moments like that in this film. And again, it doesn't take away from the message that the director and the writers were trying to tell with this film. I think it just adds on to what made Fresh so enjoyable. I think it was a, like I said, a good combination between campy and comedy and horror as well. You, It didn't feel like how I felt about, I think it was Endgame or Infinity War, where the comedy just didn't feel properly placed. It works in Fresh, for sure. I think the last 30 minutes of the film were chaotic, for sure. But I didn't expect the ending that we got. I mean, at, there was one point where I really felt like Noah, Molly, and I think it was Penny, was not going to make it out alive. Especially when you find out that Steve's wife, yes, he's married, ends up coming to the cabin and finding him dead. So you're like, okay, well now, even though they killed Steve, the wife is still alive chasing after them. The bodyguard that she has is still alive chasing after them. And so it really kept me on my toes because I was like, okay, obviously you would think in a perfect world, Noah's going to survive. Maybe Molly and Penny might die, but they're definitely going to keep Noah alive. So I was shocked that they were able to actually all get out alive. I was not shocked that they ended up killing Steve. I was shocked that the, see the wife, it's implied that she was an early captive of Steve because she's missing a leg. And obviously it'd be really hard for him to hide this part of his life from her because it's all consuming for him. And so I think it was also a take on what's the term they call it, where you're kind of, you've been kidnapped so long, you fall in love with your captor. And so there's a term for it, but I'm blinking on um, Stockholm syndrome. So it was a clear case of Stockholm syndrome. She knew that he was kidnapping and killing women and, and, and he, she knew he was a cannibal. She knew that he was selling the body parts for tons of money, considering she was one of the victims, he probably sold her leg off to someone and probably did what Noah attempted to do throughout this film, which was try to force herself to kind of, or convince Steve that she had fallen in love with him and kind of play his game because it would keep her alive a lot longer. I think the wife, when she was kidnapped, probably did the same thing where he's treating me a little differently than the others. He clearly likes me. Let me play into this so that I can stay alive. They ended up having children together. So she clearly actually fell in love with him. But then you don't expect her to be the villain. You don't expect her to know all of this. You don't find out that she knows until Molly comes to the house and they end up kidnapping her to keep her from running to the police. So that was a moment in the film that caught me off guard, but I liked that. I like that instead of making this wife, the wife, some unaware and unassuming damsel in distress, it's, oh no, she was in Noah's place at one point in time, fell in love with him, and is now helping him continue this dis these despicable acts and has now become like him and would rather kill Noah and the women he's kidnapping and protect him rather than flee because she probably knows there's no out for her anyway, but she's essentially a villain too. And she does, you go from kind of maybe sympathizing or empathizing for her 
until you find out that she not only knows what Steve is doing, but that she also participates in the act. And, oh, no, she's not some damsel in distress that's, you know, still being held captive. She actively kills with him. And so these last few moments in the film kind of keep you on your toes because it's, okay, Steve's dead. And, you know, Noah, Penny, and Molly, technically they got out of the house, but they still need to find help. And here comes the wife. She's trying to kill Noah. Molly ends up killing the wife instead. And the film ends, and and this is where I'm talking about where the comedy kind of just is perfectly placed. That same douchebag that she was dating, she went on a date with early in the film, as they finally kill the wife and they're kind of, you know, laying in the woods trying to get their bearings and, you know, probably flooded with relief that they had escaped their captor, the film kind of ends with the same guy texting her, asking her if she's up to hook up with. And it's kind of like this full circle moment of, okay, the film starts off with her really not wanting to date and and dating these really terrible guys. And then she, for once, lets herself open up and be vulnerable and date this new guy, even though signs are pointing, are probably telling her not to date him, only to find out that her fears are validated and confirmed because this guy was a fucking psychopath. So the fact that we now get to the end of the film and that same idiot from the beginning is texting her again, it just shows her like, you know, it's never ending. Like, and it just reaffirmed that I have no interest in dating and after the hell that I've been through with this guy, this current guy, I'm not dating ever again. And so it was just kind of a funny moment because he just chose that day, that time of all times to text her to ask her if she's up for a hookup. And what the real and the real ending too, because that was kind of like the official ending. And then I don't want to say it's like a post credit scene, but it's kind of like the second ending of the film, where you see a bunch of these cannibals at this huge round table, and then a tray of food is, or and I say food lightly, is placed in front of them. They open it up, and it's implied that who they're eating is Steve. And I feel like this that was like this poetic justic moment poetic justice moment because here's a guy who's been killing for probably 10 plus years severing body parts from these poor women and selling them off to be eaten only for him to meet the same fate in the end and most likely his wife as well so I really really loved that ending it was like a the the nice little bow to the end of this crazy and wild story that Fresh tells the audience so that's kind of my review and my in-depth thoughts of the new Hulu movie Fresh. I try for, I try to like, for Letterboxd, I try to give a little bit, like a a tinier summary for a review. And then when it comes to the podcast, I try to dive deeper. My rating for this film is a three out of five because again, I love the theme. I love the directional style. I love the soundtrack. I love the campiness of it. Um, I knocked some points out, I think for some some of the dialogue in the script I didn't care for. And then some parts of the film that I didn't think were needed and also you can really tell when black characters because the best friend Molly is black you can tell when a black character isn't written by a black woman it's and in this film Molly is kind of like a caricature of a black woman like you know the typical sassy best friend that takes no shit that don't play and um it's just overprotective and and just those types of stereotypes that we're often that black women are often hit with in these types of movies that are centered on a white cast, essentially. I knock some points off of that because it's lazy at this point. Have a black person. If you have a black character, make sure a black 
person is writing for this character because it's so obvious when they're not. And if a black person did write for this character, they, whoo, that's a whole different conversation. I'm pretty sure a white person wrote this script. So I definitely knocked some points out for that. But overall, Fresh was like an enjoyable watch for sure. I definitely recommend it if you're, if you want to watch something that's a little more quirky and, and different than the norm. So moving on from Fresh and into one of the greatest pieces of news to come out of last week, which is that after seven seasons, Riverdale is finally ending. Now, you know by now that I gave up with Riverdale. I think I stopped watching after season five. It, the show jumped the shark a long time ago, and I just, I couldn't, I, I couldn't put myself through it anymore. I only watched as long as I did because Vanessa Morgan, who I'm a huge fan of, joined the show, I think in season two. And season one was really, really good. And I think that after that season, the writers kind of just didn't know what to do with the show. Because when you watch the following seasons, it has no ties to season one. You could literally watch season two having no idea what had happened in season one and be fine because it completely changes directions. And I get, and I feel like Riverdale would have been more successful if they proposed the show as an anthology series. Obviously, in the Archie comics, there are whole different universes. There are versions of Archie that are different from the others. There are versions where he's dating Betty, he's dating Veronica, he's got superpowers, but he's a criminal, like whatever. There are different, there are even darker versions of the Archie comics. And I think this show does that, but in a bad way, because the show is not an anthology series. And so each season, it kind of just goes, gets more and more bizarre and, and they come up with really wild and unrealistic storylines. And I get it's a TV show. I get it's fake. But now I think in the current season, they have superpowers. It's like, how did we get from a murder mystery in season one to now these characters have superpowers? And then they did that weird crossover with um, Sabrina, the, re the Sabrina reboot. It made no sense. It's like the writers threw their hands up and said, we'll just write anything that comes to mind and hope that the fans stick with it. And it just became such an unbearable watch that I just had to give up for season five. I think I'd, if I didn't give up then, I definitely would have given up after the weird crossover that they did because it just absolutely made no sense. It's very clear they're running out of ideas. And Vanessa Morgan, as much as I love her, she could not make me watch the show any longer. But that's originally why I kept watching because I'm like, oh, you know, I, I've i been watching Vanessa Morgan, I think, since the late... Oh, I've been watching her since My Babysitter's a Vampire. And she's, she's a black actress. And, you know, I always got a root for my people. And I really enjoyed My Babysitter's a Vampire. It caused me to go back and watch the latest buzz. And then I was just like, oh, like I'm officially a fan. I tuned into anything that she was in and as a Canadian actress it's kind of harder for them to break out into America and, and get American roles so when she would when she was finally getting work I was just so happy to see her on TV again I just watch anything and she was event she was originally on Finding Carter they canceled that and then when they said that she was gonna be on Riverdale I was like okay I'll stick around and they even had um what's her name Erin Veronica I think that's her name and I know of her because she was on Awkward, she was on Glee, and so when they announced that they were bringing her on another black actress, I said, okay, let's see what they'll do with her character. Riverdale is essentially a white show. 
they have an Asian actor, they had now three black characters, but before then it was an Asian character and he barely had screen time because the actor was, I think, shooting 13 Reasons Why and they ended up recasting him. And then they had one black character and then they wrote her off and gave her own spinoff that failed and then you never really hear from Josie again. So it was very obvious that they had a diversity problem and I think that wasn't just with Riverdale either. I think, you know, there were a lot of black actors that came out about their own shows and their own struggles with, with their own networks. But either way, I was really happy to find out that Riverdale was ending because it really deserved to be canceled a long, long time ago because, again, the show has not been really... The show hasn't been good since season one. Now, because the writers have jumped shark so bad and the show was kind of all over the place, I don't know how they're going to get back... I don't know how they're going to draw the show to a close with a satisfying ending. It's that... with With the way that they've jumped shark, it's hard to kind of get a full circle moment, which I think when you create a finale, you want a sense of closure, you want a sense of these characters and these storylines coming together in a, like in a full circle moment, kind of like with How to Get Away with Murder, which had one of my favorite series finales ever, where you get back to basics in that finale. You know, Wes's son with Laurel ends up growing up to becoming a lawyer and a professor who teaches the same class that Annalise taught when his father went to that school. Like it was this, this sense of we're coming full circle here. We're tying up loose ends. It feels like a bow has been tied over the series. Even if it's not perfect, we kind of get this sense of closure. Riverdale has made it very hard for them to do that. I don't know how they're going to go back to basics. You don't go from a murder mystery to, you know, drugs, essentially making people like become zombies to having this fictional fake uh, monster to now they have superpowers like we have jumped in very different and odd storylines from season to season that it's going to make it very difficult for them to kind of try to wrap things up in a way that makes sense so I imagine that season seven and the and the series finale will be much of the same for I guess the route that Riverdale has been heading in over the past couple of years I imagine that the season seven is going to be very chaotic and I imagine that the series finale will not be satisfying. That's just my theory. But I, I am happy that it's finally coming to an end because I think also the actors were ready for it to end. Like Cole, Sprout, Cole Sprouse pretty much said it himself that the actors have been ready to kind of do other things. And I, I really can't blame them. I can't imagine that the storylines and scripts that they have been getting have been super satisfying for them. So those are my thoughts on Riverdale finally ending. Let me know what you think. If you're sad about the show ending, if you're happy and relieved like I am, and if you are still watching the show, let me know what you think about this current season because I haven't heard much about it other than the superpowers. But speaking of Cole Sprouse, it's been announced, and I don't know where the source really came from. I don't know how true this is, but it's rumored that Chance the Rapper will apparently play Mr. Mosby in A Sweet Life of Zack and Cody prequel that's set for Disney+. And in the words of my friend Sam, who asked for this? Who thought, hmm, we need a prequel on Mr. Mosby. Let's have Chance the Rapper of all people play him. Like, I don't think anybody was really interested in A Sweet Life spinoff of any kind because we got that with The Sweet Life on deck. I think it ran its course. And as much as I enjoyed Mr. Mosby on the show, I think the actor 
was phenomenal in the role. His comedic timing was everything. I don't think we need a prequel. I think we're in a place in Hollywood where we're milking classics for all they're worth. And as a creative, it bothers me because it ruins the art of the show. It ruins what the show was for that time. Sweet Life worked in a certain time. And it, and it also worked because of the characters and the, and the storylines. When you take Zack and Cody out of any Sweet Life related thing, it's just not the same. I think Mr. Mosby, and I think also certain characters are meant to just be side characters. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think we're in a space also where we're trying to make these side characters and storylines work. And we're trying to stretch these things and it just doesn't make sense. And really, a Mr. Mosby prequel can last for what? Maybe one season or two. I don't see it being a show that has longevity. I don't see a whole lot of interest being put into that show. Or, And I think part of what makes us love Mr. Mosby is the actor. Chance the Rapper one is not a seasoned actor. I don't know if he could pull off the same or have the same comedic timing as the original actor for Mr. Mosby. And again, it's not the same once there's no Zack and Cody. And I'm pretty sure, I know for a fact, that Dylan and Cole Sprouse have no interest in probably really returning to it. They, they spent their whole childhood and teenagehood playing these roles. They are adults now who have graduated from college who are doing more serious roles. Now, Riverdale has not been a serious role for Cole Sprouse in, since like season one. But you get what I mean. So I had to laugh when I saw that because I'm like, do they even try to like factor in interest from an audience anymore? Like, I don't think anybody has shown any interest in a Zack and Cody reboot or revival or spinoff in years. And I think maybe there would be more interest if it was an actual Zack and Cody thing where Dylan and Cole Sprouse were coming back, the original Mr. Mosby was coming back, Ashley Tisdale, Brenda Song. I think there would be some interest for like maybe like a short limited series on the show or even like a movie. But I don't think all shows need this. Sometimes it's good to just let it be, you know. Especially when the show hasn't been off the air that long now. Zack and Cody, it's been off for about over 10 years now. But shows like Glee, that only ended in 2015. And they were talking about revivals for that show in like 2019. And the show had been off the air for what, three or four years at that point. It's like, you're not even letting a whole lot of time go by before you guys to start to decide to start rebooting and, and you know creating revivals for these shows. So... I hope that this is just a rumor, and if it's not, I can't imagine that it's going to be any good. I'm sorry. Moving on from that rumored Mr. Mosby spinoff and onto some actual music topics, this is probably old news at this point, but I still got to talk about it because it actually started, the story actually started to break after I had edited my episode for last week, so I couldn't really get into it, but by now we all have pretty much accepted that the Migos are more than likely no more. And I think I'm more shocked that on uh, that Offset, that Takeoff and Quavo have decided to start their own thing as a group without Offset. I think I'm more shocked about that than the fact that the Migos are broken up. Obviously, we are... The mumble rap era has come to a close. And the Migos are a one-trick pony. They only know how to do the melodic mumble rap. They have not proven themselves to be top-tier lyricists or 
being able to handle super lyrical raps. They're good for one thing, and that one thing worked for them for about maybe four or five years. And now we are back in a space where people want to hear rappers rap again. They want to understand what the rapper is saying. It's not just all about catchy hooks and, and production, like that still matters, but you have to actually rap now because that's the space that we're in. And they can't do that. I think we see the effect on not just the Migos, but on all the artists that thrived in that era because a lot of them are silent. Cardi B is one of them. We have not gotten a Cardi B album and I don't think it's because music isn't being made. I think it's because they don't know what direction to take her in now that that trap mumble rap era has come to a close. And I think the WAPs and the UPs only last for so long. Those trendy pop rap, you know, TikTok bait songs, they're not gonna carry an album and they're not gonna work forever. And doing standalone singles each year is not gonna work for Cardi B forever either. So I'm not surprised that the Migos are no more. I am surprised that <laughs> that Takeoff and Quavo decided that, hey, you know, if the Migos are, are not a thing anymore, we'll just do our own thing because then it becomes very obvious that there's tension between them. It's not just we've disbanded and we're going our separate ways. It's, oh, clearly there's an issue between Takeoff and Quavo and Offset because they've decided to go do their own group without him. Now, it could be that Offset was the one that no longer wanted to do the Migos and he wanted to do solo stuff and... Quavo and Takeoff were still interested in doing Migo stuff, so because Offset decided he no longer wanted to be in the group and make music, obviously they can't label something Migos without Offset. They decided to create their own thing. But I'm not going to lie, I have heard rumors that there was strife in the group for the past couple of years. So I think that strife has boiled over. I think most of the beef must be between... It's either between both of them versus Offset or between one of them versus Offset and the other one is taking the other one's side and they just decided, you know what, fuck them, we're going to do our own thing. I don't think Neff and Few, which is what they're calling themselves, is going to last long. I think at best they'll put out a couple of songs, maybe an EP. If they're bold enough, they'll try an album. It'll flop either way and they'll go back to the drawing board and probably decide to officially disband and do their own solo work. I don't imagine it's going to work for them any better than their first round of solo albums did. I think I listened to Quavo's and Takeoff's, didn't care for that. And I think by the time Offset put his out, I just didn't care enough to listen. I think they work. They worked best as a group. I think Quavo was a strong featured artist. He provides a good hook, sometimes a catchy verse. I think Offset is a good featured artist as well. Takeoff doesn't really care about the rap stuff anymore outside of the Migos. You don't really hear him featured a whole lot. Um, I don't think rap is his main priority. So I think they work as featured artists, but as standalone artists, they are not strong enough to stand on their own. So we will see how this Neff and Few and this Migos drama goes, but I can't say that I'm surprised. So that wraps up some of the uh, music-related news, and now on to some actual reviews. I want to start off with Logic's new song, Vinyl Days, which has a feature. It technically DJ Premier is featured and he did the scratches, but Logic has made it very, very obvious and clear that DJ Premier has not actually produced the beat because apparently a lot of um, these 
music journalists are claiming that DJ Premier is the producer. It's actually Six, but DJ Premier engineered the song and he did the scratches because Logic was very, very pissed that his friend was not getting credited. And I get it, but he was really going at Complex and all these music sites for not getting it right. So I want to make sure that I make it very clear that DJ Premier did not actually produce this song. But I think he is credited as a feature. Either way, Vinyl Days is the best single from the upcoming Vinyl Days album that Logic is dropping next month. It does what an appropriate title track does. It embodies the theme Logic is going with, which seems to be old school boom bap hip hop. You know, and also back when hip hop was, you know, backed by samples and scratches, like that's the energy that Vinyl Days has and that's the energy that some of the singles has had as well. Six's production manages to still sound fresh and coupled with the sample in DJ Premier Scratches, it really gives the song an early 90s East Coast vibe. Logic's rhyme scheme throughout the track are tight and the bars are dope with none of the cordiness that I think has bogged down some of his recent work. Because we all know Logic can rap, but two things can be true. You can rap and then you can also spit some corny bars from time to time. And I think Logic has been in a space where I'm going to I'm going to bar you to death. I'm going to do that type of, you know, over rapidy type of style that I think Eminem has kind of been doing over the past, what, five years. And it's like, Logic, we know you can rap, but you don't have to over rap us to death, you know. And I feel like his approach on Vinyl Days is more subtle and, and that's why it's an, a more enjoyable record. I think he absolutely slid on this beat and I can only hope that this is the energy he brings to this album because like I said, outside of therapy music, the other singles, Tetris and Decades, I wasn't feeling those. So um, hopefully it follows more of the therapy music and Vinyl Days direction. I also love that this song is pretty much a long freestyle. It has no hook and no real structured verses. It just is. So that wraps up my thoughts on Logic's new single. Definitely let me know what you guys thought as well. Did you like the song? Did you hate it? Did you think it was mid? You don't really have an opinion or you don't really care all that much? Let me know because again, like I always say, I do enjoy hearing other people's thoughts and opinions on the stuff that I'm reviewing as well. So it seems like after last Friday that there's going to be a little bit of a cooling period. This, this coming week is the cooling period for music, you know, from... Future's album to Harry's album, there's been a lot of artists dropping in between. And so I feel like I had less pressure to do this Harry Styles review because I didn't have to worry about, okay, I have to listen to this album and absorb it, you know, put my thoughts together for this review. And then next week I have to do the same thing over and over again. It's as much as I love getting a lot of new music, now that I also review it as well, it's nice to get a little bit of a break and to be able to actually enjoy an album without a whole lot of pressure and for I enjoyed listening to Harry Styles new album and kind of putting my thoughts together on the album because I had a little bit less of that stress it's not like oh my god I have to consume this album this week and then you know I have to move on to something else I actually got to sit with it so let's get right into this review Harry's House by Harry Styles is a vulnerable safe space that Harry has created for himself filled with mellowed out alternative pop, funk-leaning production, Harry finally becomes the artist he's always wanted to be. Harry's House finds Harry being vulnerable in all kinds of different ways. On songs like Little Freak, he talks about love lost. On As It Was, he talks about loneliness in the past in sorrowful ways. Songs like Cinema, Daydreaming, and Late Night Talking sees a new, exciting, developing love and has more upbeat, fun, and carefree production. 
And the final track on the album, Love of My Life, is actually an ode to Harry's actual home. And it also plays into the feeling of loneliness and time passing you by like as it was. These songs all tie into the safe space Harry has created for this album for himself. It's something he can always carry with him and now the audience can carry with them as well because the theme is that home is not a place, it's a state of mind. It's something that you can take with you wherever you go. This album sounds vintage, but not in a way that ages the album or Harry himself. The funk and rock elements in the production help give the music layers. This is really how pop has been able to make a comeback, by layering it with other genres. You can tell he's inspired by acts that came before him from the 70s and the 80s, but he still manages to make the music his own. I don't listen to any of the songs on this album and hear anyone but Harry. Yes, of course you hear the influences, but they're not overpowering. His songwriting and storytelling remind me of Stevie Nicks and Fleetwood Mac, which could be why the album sounds so vintage to me. The songwriting on this album is the best it's ever been for, I think, any of his albums. His voice really shines on songs like Matilda, Love of My Life, and Little Freak, where the production is more mellow and acoustic and leaves room for his voice to be the main instrument that you pay attention to. His vocals have definitely improved over time because I have heard some pretty bad vocal moments from Harry early on in his career, but he's definitely become a better singer. Satellite has one of my favorite vocal moments on the album where the production sweeps in and has more punch and he's singing in a higher octave. What I love about this album is how it sounds like a movie soundtrack. It sounds really cinematic, airy, and light. And I think all of us have that I'm the main character moment where we're sitting in the car, we're sitting in our room, and we're imagining we're in a movie or we're in a music video. This album really allows you to play into that fantasy, I think. The songs that I don't care for on this album is the peculiar music for a sushi restaurant, which seems like an odd choice for an intro to an album, and also Boyfriend, which I find particularly boring and it seems to drone on for over three minutes. I think every time I listen to the album, I'm kind of like, oh, this song is still going. It's just so boring. It doesn't really do much for me. One critique I will give the album is that while the production is good, some of the songs sound enough alike that it doesn't create a whole lot of diversity for the listener and the songs kind of bleed into one another and not in a good way, but in a way that can be repetitive on certain parts of the album. I think a tweak to the track list could have fixed this as well. On his fourth album, I do hope that he makes bolder choices and, and tries to switch it up a little bit. I feel like Harry's house is a natural progression for him from Fine Line because it's okay, he could have either decided to go with a whole new sound or dive deeper into what he was experimenting on for Fine Line. So Fine Line is a really good album. It's a little bit more experimental compared to the first album, and I think Harry's House was that comfort zone that he kind of found after creating Fine Line, if that makes sense. My top tracks are As It Was, which I've already reviewed. It was the song of the week, so I won't revisit and recycle what I've already said. Little Freak, Matilda, Daydreaming, and Love of My Life. Of course, I had to give some honorable mentions because I nearly love every song on this album. My honorable mentions are Grape Juice, Cinema, and Satellite. The first song on my list is Little Freak. On this track, Harry sings about an old love and missing them. Each verse is him reminiscing about a past moment they shared together. It's melancholy and sweet. It's a pretty ballad backed by soft synths and plucked guitar strings. I love the way it's written too. It's not 
him just simply saying he misses the person. He explains why he misses them and includes little details. And of course, on whether you're writing a song or you're writing, you know, a book or a story or a script, of course, those little details really in, um, enhance the story and make whatever it is that you're writing better. My favorite lines from Little Freak are, quote, I was thinking about who you are, your delicate point of view. I was thinking about you. I'm not worried about where you are or who you will go home to. I'm just thinking about you. The next song on my list is Matilda. I think this track is the strongest piece of storytelling and writing on the album. And it immediately stands out when you listen to this album. Like, I don't think many people can walk away from Harry's house and not think about Matilda. That's one of those tracks that just stays with you. On this song, Harry is the narrator, but an outsider to Matilda's life. He tells their story of growing up in a house that is not a home, being raised by parents that don't love them or treat them right. Harry encourages Matilda to move on, leave, and not to feel guilty about it, only if they can, quote, let it go. It's backed by minimal production of an acoustic guitar and piano, which is beautiful, by the way. I think that the piano should always be used in production. I think the piano is kind of like the center of all instruments. This minimal production style forces the listener to pay attention to the story he's telling without getting swept up in grand production. Matilda is probably the most thought-provoking moment on the album. I think it's also reminiscent to the style that Taylor Swift kind of created on folklore. This idea that I'm just telling a bunch of different people's stories as this kind of narrator from the outside. Because Taylor Swift's music is always from a personal place. You're so used to her telling you about her past loves and her exes and her the person she's currently with and just you feel like when you're listening to Taylor Swift that you're listening to moments from her diary and on folklore and evermore it's this moment of okay for years I've done that but now I'm interested in telling other people's stories I'm interested in creating these characters because Taylor Swift for you know all that I knock her for she is a very very good writer so I like the idea that she said you know what I'm taking a break from telling you about my life. Let's talk about everybody else's. Let's talk about these characters that I've just made up because her approach to writing is very poetic and it's kind of like reading literature. So for her to bring that writing style to now creating fake characters for you to engage her listeners with, you know, because obviously, you know, the story that she's telling on Betty, these characters are fake. She just made them up for an interesting story. But folklore reads like a story. It has this really, this real cinematic feeling. And Matilda kind of takes that approach. And so it instantly made me think of the songs on folklore and Evermore in particular. It reminds me of Dorothea, which is about a girl who grows up in a small town. She eventually um, outgrows it. She gets older. She finds fame and she forgets about the town. And Taylor Swift is playing a narrator who fell in love with her from afar and, and kind of wants her to come back and visit and kind of revisit and reminisce about old times. It's just, Matilda gives me that feeling. Let me know if I'm alone in that. I, I definitely have to text some of my friends who are huge Taylor Swift fans and see if they made that connection. My favorite lines from Matilda are, quote, you can let it go, you can throw a party full of everyone you know, and not, and not invite your family because they never showed you love. You don't have to be sorry for leaving and growing up. The next song on my list is Daydreaming, which is an absolute favorite of mine. This track is lively, upbeat, and so feel-good that it makes me want to dance. 
It's a perfect song for the summer and for blasting in your car with the windows rolled down. The production is very grand, filled with horns, drums, pianos, and the whole nine. It'll make you want to be in the honeymoon phase for sure. And those background vocals in the chorus and refrain are heavenly. It's really like, I'm picture you're watching Grease and they have this huge dance break. Daydreaming is like this huge, fun, upbeat dance break, but it, it lasts the whole song. My favorite line to quote, give me all of your love. Give me something to dream about. The last song on my list is Love of My Life. The final track on the album is a beautiful ode to his home in England and is a perfect way to close out the album that's centered about home not being a place but an internal thing. With lines like, quote, I take you with me every time I go away. This song is somber as Harry recounts on his past memories of this place and how it's not the same anymore. How things have changed and he's now too far removed from England. Life happens. It's beautiful but sorrowful as well because I think even though all of us are not famous, I think we relate to having the special place that we loved when we were younger. And then you get older and you come back and it just doesn't give you that same feeling. I think that's what love of my life kind of embodies. My favorite lines are, quote, baby, you are the love of my life. Maybe you don't know what's lost till you find it. It's not what I wanted to leave you behind. Don't know where you'll land when you fly. But baby, you are the love of my life. Harry's house is like having front row seats to his innermost personal thoughts, feelings, and experiences. He finally feels at home, which makes the title appropriate. It's his most personal body of work to date, and that vulnerability pays off with a very solid third album. So that wraps up my thoughts on Harry's house. Please let me know what you thought of the album. I see a lot of people online are, are generally enjoying it. I do think that he's come a long way from his debut album, which I just didn't care for at all. So I think he's on the right track to becoming a really, really good artist. But yeah, let me know your thoughts on the album. Let me know your favorite songs, which songs you didn't really care for. Let me know if you agree with my top tracks list, by the way, too. I'm always curious to see. Um, I, I always like people comparing their like top fives to mine. So before we get to the end of the episode, I have to get into the song of the week. And the song of the week is Keep the Family Close by Drake. Keep the Family Close is off of his 2016 album Views. And Views is just one of those albums like I talked about with the Harry Styles album where he, Love of My Life is about kind of having, trying to recapture that magic that you had before and it's not the same. 2016, I think a lot of us agree that it was a, really good year for most of us you know you know for me personally a lot of my friends and peer group we were graduating high school you know we were getting a taste of freedom we were getting a taste of what it was like to be an adult without real real responsibilities we were going off to college and I think a lot of us just took that time to just be wild and have fun it was just a positive happy experience I think that year and so this album always comes with really, really happy memories for me because I, you know, remember that time and that time felt so magical. So by extension, a lot of the albums that came out in 2016 felt magical. And Views is just one of those where when the weather is getting nice, if I'm in a really good mood, I throw that album on and it just reminds me of all the happy memories I have with, you know, old friends from high school with us just running around, driving wherever we wanted to go and just having fun and enjoying each other's company. And it comes sometimes with a little bit of sadness because, you know, as you become an adult, you grow apart from people, you know, your lives take you in different directions. But I think that year and this album just kind of pulls me back to that time. And so 
I felt like it was appropriate to take a song from Views and make it the song of the week. So it is Keep the Family Close by Drake. If you have not heard it by now, then definitely check it out. So we have reached the end of the episode. Thank you for listening to me rant and ramble for a little over an hour. I appreciate it. Now, if you really enjoyed this episode, then please consider giving Listen to Me Speak a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you rate your podcasts. And if you really want to keep up with this podcast further, then please consider heading to my website, www.listentomespeak.com. There are links to all of my social medias. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. I even have a YouTube account. And if you want to support this podcast further, then please consider donating to my listeners' donations, which can be found on my Anchor page or on my website, which is again, www.listentomespeak.com. And like I say every week, be kind to yourselves and thank you for listening to me speak.